Welcome back to another episode of Bush School Uncorked. I'm your host, Justin Bullock. Greg is here with me this evening. Hi, Greg. I'm coming to you live from my porch. Yeah, Greg actually inspired me. Instead of being inside, I'm not on my porch because I don't have a cool porch, but I am in a campground sitting outside of my camper. It's almost the same thing. <laughs> you have bricks. I have styrofoam, I think. <laughs> it's good to see you. Uh, thanks for taking the. Thanks for being here. I know you've had no time on Zoom lately, so you were itching to uh, be video conference calling, um, and so uh, I think Zoom has become, you know, just a, a like Facebook and Google. It felt like overnight. Now with Zoom, I'm on Zoom as I'm on Zoom actually much more than I'm on Facebook these days, and almost equivalent to the amount that I'm on my Gmail. You can uh, you. I, I would refer you to the Aretha Franklin song from, uh, I think maybe from the early 90s, Who's Zooming Who? <clears throat> of course, it should be Who's Zooming Whom, but she's the queen of soul, so we'll, we'll cut her some slack. And uh, I recommend it. I think, yeah, got, got, I think you've got a good meme in that. I think like I think you should really embrace that and just go off and like after this, there's a, there's a fantastic meme you, uh, that, that <laughs> I have not seen. And which is just cool. Why don't you why don't you introduce our guest and then maybe he can explain to me what a meme is. <laughs> <laughs> I know Greg knows what a meme is only because the podcast has produced some of our own memes um, in uh, some uh, some beautiful, very intelligent quotes uh, that Greg and I have offered for our audience. But um, to everyone's relief, we have a guest. It's not just Greg and I chatting again this week. Professor Jesse Sowell is with us, who is one of our Bush School colleagues. Thank you for being here, sir. Oh, thanks for having me. So I think we'll do a little bit of uh, hot takes. Uh, and as uh, you mentioned before we started, we welcome you to join in on that. But maybe give us, uh, go ahead and give us the 30 seconds or 90 seconds uh, potted version of who Jesse Sowell is. And then we will jump into our hot takes so the guests know uh, why they should be listening to you. So uh, 30 second, uh, 90 second, whatever. Um, the, uh, so I'm a um, assistant professor of international affairs. Um, I look at cybersecurity, um, international operations, international development, and uh, oh, sorry, inter internet operations, internet development, which is adjacent to international development and, uh, and to some degree uh, international security as it relates to cybersecurity, internet security. Um, I'm a uh, I'm a recovering computer scientist. So my background uh, from way back was a uh, was a computer scientist. I uh, realized I was less interested in the uh, the bits and the bytes and just staring at that all day, and realized it was much more interesting to understand how we make decisions about and how when I say how we how how the individuals that build infrastructures like the internet make decisions about how to make it secure, how to make it sustainable, how to make it stable, and so a lot of what I look at is a uh, the non-state institutions that make the internet stay glued together in a secure and stable way. So that's my quick background and bumper sticker. Very good. And what uh, what maybe you didn't know, Jesse, uh, although you, you may have inferred before joining us this evening, is you lie at the exact intersect of issues that Greg and I are interested in, but maybe don't know a ton about what each other each other uh, each other's specialties is, which is international affairs which I'm still learning about, and um, cyber issues in general, because Greg's not a millennial, so I don't think he can, he can kind of really wrap his head around those things. Yeah, that, that's absolutely <laughs> true. He can, tell us wonderful, he can tell us wonderful stories about the party line, though. So. <laughs> the party line. Yeah. I, actually, I actually have been on telephones that were party lines, uh, the, some of the last remaining ones. But I did it today. This week's uh, achievement for me is I learned how to sign PDF documents uh, remotely. <laughs> I love that. And, that. and that has changed my life. It's, you know, so, so it wasn't just me bringing my iPad into your office and making you sign it because I hate printing things. It was like you actually digitally signed something. I actually, I actually digitally, I learned how to digitally sign PDFs. We will have you not using paper in no time. Yeah, yeah. I've been working on. I, I, I am just, I am just pining for the days when I can go back to my office and print stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, one thing, Greg, you're coming to us from your, uh, 
from your porch out there, which is nice. I'm here from. I, I am coming to you live from my porch. And uh, one of the things that's nice about that is uh, we're social distancing. We're staying at home. We're under some stay-at-home orders, and uh, we are we're doing our best to follow those. Um, you know, since last week, we had another round of unemployment insurance numbers that were uh, less than desirable. Um, oil prices, as we were discussing a minute ago, went negative briefly. And it turns out um, Georgia and Texas, as two of the states that I follow, are ready to open up for business right at the same time we're reaching the peak of deaths. And, you know, some of these states need to be liberated, according to the president. I feel like I missed some things in the last week. Have you been following any of this? So I, I do read the papers. Uh, <laughs> and, and I, you know, the, the, I thought the most interesting thing about the Liberate stuff, aside from the fact that the president tweeted about it, is how small the crowds were. Uh, you know, the polling data does seem to indicate that, that majorities, including people who self-identify as Republicans, uh, feel that it's more important to, to maintain social distancing rules and limitations on public gatherings uh, for the foreseeable future until uh, the science tells us that, that uh, the risks of, of contagion have been reduced. So I, 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 that's, I, I, that's what I actually thought the most interesting thing about, about the Liberate uh, rallies, gatherings, whatever you want to call them, was is how small they were. You know, people have compared them to the Tea Party and the emergence of the Tea Party in 2009. I think the crowds are smaller. I mean, one similarity is that this is a grassroots movement that's actually AstroTurf, right? It's fake grassroots. Uh, there are uh, PACs that are supporting this mobilization, uh, including one affiliated with the family of the Secretary of Education. But I guess that's not unusual because President Trump, you know, tweeted support for gatherings that actually violate the the, the social distancing recommendations that the administration itself has, has, uh, has issued. So uh, I, I, I take heart from the fact that these, these uh, gatherings have been relatively small. Well, one of the good things out of the news lately has been that, you know, the, the peak capacity of the hospitals has kind of seemed to have reached its peak in a lot of states. Um, the confirmed cases, the in terms of the daily number of them, see, in the country seem to have uh, seem to have peaked. New York, uh, the New York governor thinks that New York has kind of passed its peak. You know, as we were looking at all these models coming up to this week, this was kind of the time period when we expected to get the peak. And then, as long as social distancing measures stayed in place through the end of May, things were supposed to kind of tailor off and get us down to, you know, relatively few to no new cases. But this doesn't seem to be kind of the direction that the president's pushing. It doesn't seem to be the direction that our governor's pushing. And it doesn't seem to be the direction that Georgia, again, being where I'm from and having some political familiarity with, is pushing for. And what's, the, what's going on there, do you think, Greg? I mean, it seems to be some, there seems to be a relatively uniform consensus among experts in general that we need more widespread testing, that we need more protective equipment. These are kind of necessary things before, in general, we start downplaying the importance of social distance. So what, what's, what's going on? What's your take of this? Yeah, and, and I, I want to bring Jesse in on this too, because he's a South Carolinian, and, and South Carolina is also, interestingly enough, the senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, who's of course very close to the president, tweeted today uh, that he thought Georgia was moving too fast too soon. Uh, and, and South Carolina is at risk because Georgia's doing this. But I, I think, you know, I, I don't follow Georgia the way you do, but, but Texas politics I think is really interesting on this in that you have a, a governor who is, uh, I think, very inclined to, to test the political wins. I don't think the governor likes to get out in front of things. And so what you have is the governor saying, oh, yes, we're going to open up the state. But if you actually look at the, at the restrictions that have been lifted and what's been left on, 
his guidelines aren't that different than, than what they were before. So, you know, you can, you can go to the Home Depot and, it, it, and, and the folks in there will bring the stuff out to the curb for you. That, that's not that different than what we've been doing already. And, uh, you know, I noticed that Senator Cruz, who's one of my most faithful correspondents, he sends me emails all the time. He had a, he had a, a you know, a big banner on the last email, you know, Senator Cruz supports liberating Texas or something to that effect. And then in the, in the body of the email, he actually doesn't want to change that much about what's happening. So I think that there's a sense that, that uh, public officials in Texas don't actually want to reopen in the way that we think of as liberating uh, the, the kind of public, uh, pu public interactions in Texas, but they want to be seen as supporting it. So they, it's, it's eating your cake and having it too. But I, I think it's interesting that, that even people who, who are identified, you know, with that kind of Tea Party ethos like Senator Cruz, you know, want to want to have the headline seem like they're with them, but the, but the, the actual policy, not so much. Jesse, what, what, what's your sense? Uh, so, uh, so a lot of, a lot of the way I think about this is like, is, is going back to like, just, it's just looking at, looking at these as, 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 as health externalities. So how do we, if, if, if you are going to like, if you are going to try to reopen things, have you going to try to do this? Like there are, it's going to require much more nuance than just like saying liberate, 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 as you pointed out. There's like, there, there's, there's lots of great ways that we can like think of like how to, how to, how to open some of these, open some of these businesses to make sure that they keep going without necessarily breaking social distancing. So your example of the Home Depot example, where people bring things out to you, um, being able to expand what, what it means, not just to expand what it means to be essential, but expand, expand things and like really do some thoughtful work on how can we make some of these non-essential businesses that we really want to stay open to kind of sustain the economy. How can we make it safe for them to operate? So, of course, you're not going to open the local barber shop. That that would be a little that would be a little crazy. But like opening uh, opening up other things like some of the uh, non-essential stores that have closed, being able to like say here's 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 how we can incent them to do something like Home Depot is doing or expand like the number the way the way we deliver food i mean that's 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 pretty well defined already but things like that for me that's a uh, for me it's a for me it's an interesting question of how do you how can you how can you do that gradual gradual opening to kind of sustain especially the local economies without necessarily doing a full bore kind of as you said with the headlines like liberate liberate we're all just going to go back to quote unquote normal yeah i i could desperately use a haircut I mean, I, I, I'm looking like a hippie. I'm, I really, I just, it's something I think about way too much. When am I going to be able to get my hair cut? Well, if I'm uh, not mistaken, which I'm, I had, was looking it up as we were talking, my understanding is that as of Friday of this week, Georgia is opening gyms, beauty salons, and barbershops. I might drive so there this weekend. <laughs> so it was uh it was nice that that was your example of something that seems like just uh maybe not quite there yet uh that is uh what brian kemp with the governor of uh of georgia is suggesting but you know maybe at this point it's kind of fitting given that two weeks ago he learned that the uh coronavirus could be transmitted from one human to another <laughs> which was all a meme in my uh, social media there for a while. Okay. Maybe you've got something else. Well, I just, uh, do you have any sense on election stuff? I think election stuff is pretty much wrapped up. Now we're down to two and uh, we'll wait and see who the VP pick from uh, uh, Joe Biden is and uh, have a, a messy road forward. I imagine. Well, I, I, I got to tell you, if I were Biden's campaign manager, I'd say stay in your basement. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, you know, this is this is up. It's President Trump's time. He's gonna he's gonna either either successfully or unsuccessfully manage this crisis. And uh, you know I, I you know lots of people are saying oh Joe Biden nobody hears from him nobody hears. Him. I would say that that is the perfect campaign strategy right now for Joe Biden. Just hanging tight. And of okay. course you know he's in a basement in my hometown. So 
you know, Wilmington, Delaware is not the worst place to be in a basement. No, it doesn't seem like I haven't been, but your stories of it make it sound like uh, I need to visit. Someday. <laughs> so, okay, I, that was the last thing I had. Let's transition on because people uh, have listened to us the entire last episode and now 15 minutes into this episode. We have with Professor Jesse. So, Jesse, thanks for... Um, for being with us and thanks for giving us a little bit of a background. One transition that you and I talked about uh, into talking about some of the issues that we have some interesting overlap in and some inter- issues that uh, tied directly to your research, um, I alluded to in the opening, which was uh, our reliance now on Zoom. As you know, universities were pretty early on in this process of, of sending everyone home and saying, don't come in anymore. Um, really since uh, spring break happened for us everything I've done as we were joking about earlier and uh, Greg and I were joking in in text messages earlier was zoom all the time and zoom is an interesting issue of a tool that was nicely placed for us to be able to utilize when we needed it but then pretty much almost immediately um, in those weeks following there were all these kind of security concerns that started popping up with zoom some which we've experienced uh, kind of filming the show. A lot of people have had people um, uh, kind of jumping in on their classrooms, trying to record things. There's been some rhetoric around trying to use these tools to record professors, um, to catch them, you know, when they're saying something um, that the student disagrees with. So let's kind of take that as our launching point. What's your, what's your take of what's going on with Zoom? And it's all of a sudden become as essential as social media or Google to those of us in higher education and, and really education more generally. So, uh, so I've uh, I've been following this a little bit, and it's uh, and it's and it's interesting to me because it's a because it's a classic case of security versus usability. I mean, it, it is it could not be a more canonical instance of that of that issue that like people that design this software, people that use it, people that deploy it, like have to think about it on a daily basis and. Whenever you're designing something like Zoom, like um, Alex Stamos at Stanford, he's like he's uh, he's recently um, he's recently decided to be he's formerly with Facebook. Um, now he's uh, now he's uh, doing some work at a uh, Center for International Security and Cooperation at uh, at Stanford. Does a lot of Internet Observatory stuff. He was a uh, he was highlighting something that's really interesting, which is like he highlighted that that that's a that's a mid-range IT firm that that all of a sudden became the it thing. Just like you said, it became like a, uh, a platform that we now increasingly rely on. Um, and so anytime you put that amount of scrutiny on a piece of software, I mean, like going back to like recovering computer scientists, still remember a little bit of it, like every piece of software has flaws. If you look at it hard enough, if you hammer on it hard enough, you're going to find vulnerabilities, you're going to find flaws. And so Zoom made, made a choice. They decided to make their their tool usable, and they didn't pay as much attention as they could have to the security flaws, and that um and that seemed to work for them for a while because it wasn't a, it wasn't as widely used. But as 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 with anything you do on the internet, you're going to like as soon as something becomes widely used, it's going to attract all of the malicious actors, all of the trolls that are going to come along and zoom bomb. So one of the so a lot of what I've seen with um when you get past the um past some of the immediate oh my gosh, Zoom is insecure, blah, 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 is a lot of folks are like, Zoom has actually done quite a lot of good stuff and being responsive to their security problems has been responsible, responsive to working with folks that have reported this. And a lot of these folks have like actually, especially one particular, um, one particular cybersecurity actor, uh, Gaddy Evren, he, was, um, he, he wrote kind of a somewhat, um, somewhat scathing like, uh, piece on Medium that basically said, get off Zoom's case. This, they're, uh, they're, they're, doing a good, they're doing a good job. Like you, you, what we really need to do is really focus on how do we use the tools that are available to make it secure, like putting passwords on your, on your Zoom session or putting um, or ensuring that you, um, you have a waiting room like we do here. And so a lot of this is a lot of this is a, is a lot of um, is essentially a lot of dogpiling on a, on a tool that has many of the same, that has many of the same vulnerabilities that a lot of these other, video conferencing services have. So if for some reason we all just said, well, to heck with Zoom, we're going to go and we're going to use Google Hangouts or we're going to use Skype, then all of that attention would be on them and you'd have the same dogpiling effect. So I think a lot of this needs to be taken with a grain of salt and say like, you know, 
let's look at like, let's look at the trade-off between, is this a tool that like facilitates distance education, facilitates keeping people in touch with their relatives, ameliorates some of this isolation that we're experiencing versus, um, versus like the relatively small effort to kind of help people understand how to secure their sessions. So that's, um, so one of the other interesting things that Gaddy said, and then I'll, then I'll, then I'll drop it off, um, is, um, is there's he being a cybersecurity professional fairly fairly well known in the industry he's um he also not only chastised folks that were getting on zoom's case and kind of just being being a, just dogpiling but he's also like he also made a call to in the infosec community saying you guys shouldn't be dogpiling either don't be classical like tech pinheads that are like oh well zoom has this esoteric security problem blah 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 think about the trade off think about your responsibility as a cybersecurity professional informing the public about what is genuinely dangerous to them versus something that is just like walking in the public, just like any other thing that's, that, that could be public. Like you face the potential of being confronted with nasty individuals that are gonna show you, show you ugly images or say things that are going to be, um, that are gonna be, uh, that are gonna be offensive to you you face that every day when you, when, or in normal times, when you walk out the door, when you go to a public forum. We don't face those, th we don't face those problems. <laughs> not, 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 not anymore. We, we just, we just have to worry about, uh, we just have to worry about getting to the kitchen. Yeah. But, um, but there's, but there's also, there's also a subtext of these discussions around, around how we frame the security versus usability problems and really focusing on what is good for the end user, good for the public, if you will, versus what is something that's a, really esoteric kind of a really esoteric security issue that certainly is problematic, but it's a, uh, it's the, the social value versus the, just the nuance of overly techie analyses. Is, uh, so, so Jesse, I, I mean, I, I, I found zoom very easy to, to use and, and I converted over to it with, you know, relatively frictionless, you know, very, very few transaction costs. Very. So I, I, I mean, I've, I, I found it, invaluable for this switch over mid semester to, to teaching at distance. But I was involved in, I was doing a, a seminar at distance with people, uh, some of whom were, were in the, at the Pentagon and the military doesn't allow uh, people to use zoom and it doesn't allow them even to use zoom on their personal computers. So there must be some security Yes. So I, so that's, that is that is that is another exact uh, another fantastic point, which is, which is a lot of these folks that are promoting Zoom, these folks that have uh, that have like some of these cybersecurity like on the ground cybersecurity experts that are coming out saying like, yes, zoo, use Zoom for your daily activities for things that are like, but if you are dealing with something that's really critical to your firm's value proposition, if it's something that you're having like a call about a new product that's coming out, you really don't want your competition to know about it, then Zoom might not be the thing to use because there are, there are actors that are not just your trolls that are coming in and like throwing porn on the screen or spewing out, um, spewing out racist slurs, which are like, which are very bad. It can be very psychologically damaging to other, other people on that call. But the, um, but if you have something that's of real serious, um, of, of really serious high value, or if you're say like, doing work with national security, then Zoom probably isn't a thing for you. You want to use something, there are plenty of other, um, perhaps less easy to use, less well-known um, video conferencing tools that do have a lot better, um, a lot better security. They're a lot, they're a lot older. They've been, they've been hammered on by a lot of other folks and been pen tested and all that kind of good stuff a lot more that's more appropriate. So you're absolutely right. This is a, this is that, that's a great point, but that's a, but for the most part, at least, at least right now, 90% of my 90% of my calls are not of that nature. When I need to say talk to one of my research subjects in the cybersecurity community, community, and that's and it's a, something that's covered by covered by human subjects, I would not use Zoom. In part because I don't want them to think that I'm like putting their stuff at risk in Zoom. I mean, it's not unlikely that there's going to be someone that knows we're having that conversation, but I'm going to try to compromise that call. But it's still a still a concern. But like. But for the most part, for 
someone talking to their grandkids, someone running a class, someone having a uh, just a regular day-to-day stand-up for their firm, Zoom is perfectly fine. Um, the other oh, aspect, I, the other so aspect, I'm still, of, I'm still okay doing my Zoom cocktail hour with my siblings on Sundays. Yes, yes, you should definitely do that. And, uh, Nothing classified in there. And and if by chance you they they do crack your password and they and they break in, just tell them like, chill, have a cocktail, just relax and like ignore them. So, or just run a waiting room. Yeah, the cocktails so, are not as good in the waiting room, but whatever. <laughs> so one of the things you highlighted is this trade-off between uh, usability and security that people should be aware of as just a, as a general kind of thinking about cybersecurity and other values kind of framework. Are there other, are there other things that kind of fit in that category that sometimes programming, sometimes it's uh, optimized as, as the word is for usability Sometimes security is weighted more or less heavily. Sometimes things like, um, you know, uh, trying to predict some, using uh, the information from the program to predict something else about you might be uh, a major goal. Privacy, con- uh, privacy concerns, what's to be done with the data. Do you, when, you, when you're kind of thinking about what's good for the public and what some of the challenges are at the intersect of programming and kind of public values. How, how do you how do you see some of the competing pressures here? And then I think we have a, a question that we'll take after that. So I mean, so, I mean, one of the classic competing pressures that we kind of batted around as we were uh, we were planning this call is like this balance between between usability and an appealing platform like our favorite our favorite uh, our favorite uh, um, whipping horses is, uh, is is Facebook. We all love Facebook. We all use Facebook. We all enjoy Facebook. It's it's another great platform for keeping in touch with people, for following on what's going on. But it's what's going on with your family, friends, some of the people you don't like, but you still follow because you want to know the latest gossip, whatever. Um, but Facebook is notorious for collecting all kinds of information about you. And so there's a uh, so there so that's so that's that's another classic trade-off is whether you uh, whether you value the utility of being part of that social network versus the kind of private information they collect. And so one of those being one of the one of the interesting challenges there is that whenever you're looking at these things, when you speak to like the programming aspect of it, like unless you you don't have to really necessarily get into the programming of to know what they're doing. You can see you can kind of, you can kind of get a feel for what kind of information you're collecting. So when I was when I was doing my master's before I did my my PhD, I did a master's thesis on on privacy. And one of the things that you one of the things that came out of that was that yes, they have these privacy statements that tell you what they're doing, but unless you can unless you're willing to wade through a lot of legalese and you also understand enough about the technology to know how they're collecting this data when they say things like, we're just collecting innocuous information about you, like your age range and the region you're in and um, whether you like red wine or white wine. But when you aggregate all that together, even though they may not have what's conventionally known as PII, this idea of like a social security number or your phone number or your home address, they still have, once they, put all those little innocuous pieces together, they have a really distinct aggregate image of the individual. So they have a very good description. So if somebody took all that aggregate, that aggregate image and then, then said, hey, there's, um, there's this guy who's between like 35 and 45 years old, currently lives in Texas. He looks at flights to Charleston and London. He likes craft beer. He likes playing darts. He's a bit of a bit of a, leads a lot of political economy and a lot of computer science. They'd be like, oh, you know, Jesse, great. That's awesome. And like, so that aggregate image is like, is, is, is something that they collect, but most people don't necessarily, it's not, it's not obvious. It's something that it's, it's where a lot of these tools and a lot of understanding the privacy implications are less of a, what economists would call a search good, something that you can kind of like go evaluate and say, okay, this is, this is, this is this tool. It has these properties. It's exactly what I want. It doesn't have any additional properties. It's more of an experience good until you use it and start seeing those effects. And so whenever we look at these things, like one of the big challenges is how do you, how do we start to incentivize these firms to share more information about what they're doing in a way that people don't have to go through that experience, don't have to go through that kind of learning experience, don't have to go through these, uh, 
go through having privacy leaks or having things that are the all that that everybody makes fun of it but when you share the wrong thing with the wrong person you're like oops my ex just saw that that wasn't what i wanted to happen like that's um that's a that's a challenge but like being able to find that find that balance and that's that's not necessarily within their um within their proposition so that kind of trade-off is something that is that i find especially interesting is being able to kind of surface those make it less of an experience good and more of a more of a here's here's our here's our contract with you that like, and how do you, how do you enforce that? How do you get third, how do you, how do you, how do you incent the creation of third parties that can actually monitor that without also in the same vein, monetizing that information? So for me, that's, that, that to me is a fascinating trade-off and it gets kind of to your question of like, what are the algorithms doing and how do we, and how do we understand it without necessarily being able to see the actual algorithm itself? Yeah, no, I want to come. I want to come back to that because this is uh, one of the things I was uh, very interested in talking to you about. I was just reading uh, in Foreign Policy today, which has got the international affairs lens, about the idea around a digital bill of rights from some folks out at Harvard, thinking about you know what should the protections be for individuals in the digital space, particularly given that we know you know. Um, read some stuff from Shoshana Zuboff that's turned this, you know, turned the surveillance capitalism, right? Yep. That where you offered a free product from Facebook or, or Google and, and Facebook being kind of the, the classic example of then all of the other things that you do interacting with that product are used to build up a user profile about you to target ads directly to you with a bunch of kind of intense AB testing. But I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm uh, starting to go to I can see Greg. Anytime, anytime you get something for free, you are not the consumer, you are the product. Yep, 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 no, 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 that's, yep. that's, that's exactly right. And, and actually the argument that, uh, that's made here is, is not even, you're not even exactly the, the product, you're part of the product. Uh, your behavior yeah. is yeah. part of the supply of the product that's then packaged and sold to advertisers to then directly uh, target ads to you. Yep. So that's, I mean, that's, that's precisely that. That's a lot of what that, what that privacy work was about was, um, was looking at how this. And so part of the reason I told that aggregate image story is that whenever they target information to you, like one of the, at the, at the time, I was very fortunate that the wall street journal was also publishing this series where a, a canonical instance of this was, um, uh, a young girl, 13, 14 years old was, was online searching for, uh, better, better, better eating habits, healthier eating habits. And what kind of advertisements do you think she got? Just, just make a wild guess. Uh, better eating habits. Uh, let's see. Is there things in there like about eating disorders? Uh, close. Got diet pill. Got diet pill. Um, yeah, diet pill. Diet pills. So, yeah. so of course it's like that's exactly the wrong thing you want to tell a <laughs> a, a, a teenager, male or female, that may have. That, that have all the pressures of being a teenager and all the body image issues that go along with it. That's the exactly wrong thing. That's, that's where you're taking two pieces of information that come from two spheres of an individual's life and you're mashing them together. You're, you're breaking down what we normally look at as, um, as our privacy context. Like we have, we tell certain things to some people, we tell certain things to others. When I'm, when you're at a restaurant, you're sitting at a restaurant, you know, there's other people around you, you know what you can talk about with your with the person you're at dinner with, you know how far that's going to go, you know, um, and you and you have some tacit rules between you about what you're going to talk about. So you're not going to talk to them about the same things you talk to your physician about. And moreover, with your physician, it's a one way street, you're telling them all the detailed nuanced things about what you're doing and why it may be unhealthy. They're not telling you any of that. They're like, so these different privacy contexts, whenever you're online and you're cruising around and you're going from website to website and all of them have these little network advertising beacons that are collecting all this, they are essentially breaking down our understanding of, um, of those privacy contexts. So while you may feel like you're at Amazon, you feel like somewhere else, they're still aggregating that all together and they don't discern, they just, they just glom it all together and then fire advertisements at you that correlate with subsets of those of those of those preferences that they've that these are these are classic revealed you, you whether one you want to do or not you revealed your preferences but um <laughs> but they uh, but they but they glom those together and in in a lot of cases like the diet pills example you um you that they may be presenting you with advertisements that elicit this response in you they're like 
I know that those are things that are part of my life, but I didn't necessarily want to see those things combined and then be confronted with an advertisement that reminds me of that combination of things. That might be something that I'm fairly sensitive to. And that's a, and that creates this element of this, that creates this element of discomfort. And, and so, but on the other side of that, while I sound like I'm very anti-advertisement, very anti this, that's how we get to, that's how we, that's how the free, free is in not free um, internet that we know and love, or at least the free, free platforms that we use every day are provision. That's how they're paid for. So again, finding that middle ground where, where, where I don't want to sound like a green-eyed monstrous capitalist, but like finding a way to say, to allow people to say, I'm happy for you to use my preferences. Because quite honestly, I love getting book recommendations from, from Amazon. That's fantastic. I found lots and lots of great lots and lots of great tip books. Do I want them to know my health information? Probably not. But being <laughs> able to being able to understand how to enforce those partitions for people to be able to express, I want to share this with you and not share this with you. I'm happy for you to do you send me interesting ads because some advertisements are useful. So again, that balance without necessarily we can we, we have an understanding of how we don't have to see the exact code, but we can understand how those algorithms are working and how they create these these negative effects. So for me, that's that's a that's 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 the intersection with your with your question about what they're doing with our private information and how they're using it. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, let's uh, Faith. I see Faith. Uh, so that means she has a question. So let's take a question and then uh, given that there's time, let's come back to some of this. All right, so going off of everything that was just said, is there a program that you would recommend for confidential conversations? Oh God, um, so- uh, But hold it, I think that that one was directed to me, wasn't it? No, no. <laughs> I mean, if you're looking to have confidential conversations, then I mean like something like, um, something like Signal is a really great, um, is a really great tool. It's a, um, it's, uh, it's presented largely as an instant messaging app that, uh, that works on your phone, that works on, um, if I remember correctly, I haven't ever used Signal on the desktop, so I don't know if it has a desktop client. Um, things like Signal, Telegram, um, I would have said WhatsApp, but they were just, they were just recently, they, they, they are owned by Facebook. So, um, and that was a huge controversy whenever they were acquired by Facebook and Facebook said, no, we're going to let you, we're going to let you just go on being WhatsApp and cue to your your ethos of privacy that that, that drew all the drew all the uh drew all your customers but then they kind of reneged on that so I, I would look into things like um telegram and signal both of which um both of which have uh have voice <clears throat> capability and uh if i remember correctly video capability i usually use them for voice but those are two those are two good ones that are explicitly dedicated to um keeping your conversations private having having end-to-end -end, uh having end-to-end -end encryption all that kind of good stuff so let me ask, I mean, given our discussion, are those, are those apps free? Yep. And so how do these people finance themselves? So if I remember correctly, Telegram has one, one I'm, I'm sorry, I, I forgot which one it was. Telegram or Signal, one of the two has, um, has a, has a fairly huge, um, has a fairly huge, fairly huge um, grant that's, um, that's been given to them. And they're, um, and I do believe one of them has a, uh, one of them has a, uh, one of them has a more, um, has a pay for a, a pay subscription style offering. But, um, but I haven't, uh, but I haven't dug into, cause I use the, I use the free versions and I've never, uh, so yeah, so, but. Um, Zoom yeah. I believe has a pay for version. We, we just get licensed kind of like what's in the. Yeah, Zoom version. does. Zoom has a whole, Zoom has a whole tier structure of. Uh, yeah, I mean, of, we're, we're not, I mean, at Texas A&M, we're not paying. We, the individual faculty and students. Yeah, no, are paying Zoom, but I. I think the university's bank for Zoom. Yeah, the university has bank for license. Yeah, so Zoom has Zoom has a license, um, and so. But I mean, for for a lot of people, Zoom is um, Zoom Zoom's free offering is is perfectly fine. I mean, it lets like it allows for like something like somewhere around like fifty or a hundred people per 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 session. So I mean, unless you're unless you're doing something like a big webinar, then, um, and I think uh, I think some of the distinctions are like what you can turn on like authentication like like some of us have to like all of all of my classes that i set up i, I make them do the the, the tamu net id login so i think that's a paid feature so but um but you can still i think in the, in the free version you can still set the password <clears throat> still set the waiting list but yeah so 
So again, we have so, that. again we have this 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 borderline surveillance. Is is this surveillance capitalism? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good question. I, I want to shift to uh, COVID nineteen and talking a little bit about how we mentioned Zoom kind of at the at the start out as something that we started using more as a consequence of COVID-19, but there are all these, and you used, uh, Jesse, the, some of the health data concerns and some of the methods that, um, that are kind of being discussed around uh, how can we intelligently integrate back into a somewhat of a normal existence involve um, uh, tracing. Could you, do you know much about that? I didn't, I didn't prep you with this question, but this presents some concerns about what types of data and storage capabilities we want both government and private actors to have kind of getting this some of the nuance. So, so you're thinking, yeah, but, you're thinking tra in, it, trace, tracing individuals movements such that they can um, such that they can such that we can get reporting information about contact information information on contact information without necessarily excruciatingly violating individuals privacy. Uh, yeah, you worded it perfect. Now, now you have to have as good of an answer as you did frame. Your <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a um, so there's there's a tool that um, or there's a kind of tool that Apple and Google have been working on, which basically is um something that they're both starting to um, they're both going to bake into the um, bake into their respective um, mobile phone operating systems. And what it does is it um it doesn't share any information about you. What it does is it uses some some interesting encryption and uh, encryption techniques to like kind of like to to create these, to create to you they they turn on your Bluetooth, and Bluetooth is great because its range is farther than what you should be with social distancing. So as you approach someone, like if you've been in the Bluetooth range of someone else who's also using this, your your two devices are going to exchange these um exchange these random, essentially these random numbers that they can tell because of, without going into detail, encryption magic, that this was generated by this, by this particular device that was assigned this key. This one was generated by this device that was assigned this key. So whenever you, if you come along and you, and if you're, we're all, or a lot of us are using these devices, as we move in and out our day, what these devices do is they say, okay, I saw, when I was walking along, I saw these utterances from another device. This device made this utterance, this device made this utterance, and it, and it, and it collects all of them and it uploads them to a common repository. Again, none of this, if they implement it correctly, which I trust given the scrutiny of this, that a lot of people that do encryption a lot more regularly than I do, um, will scrutinize this and it, uh, and it, and it shares this in, a, in this repository. So then if you go to the doctor and you're like, I'm starting to feel like I've got COVID symptoms, or you call up your doctor on Zoom, or how do you report it that you, you're feeling affected? What they can then do is say, let's look up your um, look up the utterances from your device and see who else has seen those, who else's devices have seen those. So they have a way to contact the individuals that um, that that whose devices came into contact with yours. So they they then immediately say, this many you can in, in the last so many days back from whenever you started exhibiting symptoms, you encountered this many people. So it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting prospect. Um, there's a, uh, there's actually a cute web comic that, um, that actually describes this because these are, these are combination of privacy advocates and encryption nerds that are, that are, that are helping contribute to this. So of course they love to make comic de depictions of very technical, um, of very technical things. So it's a, so it's, so it's a really interesting potential solution that seems to be modulo some modulo some uh some some failure modes in deployment um could be a really really powerful uh, way to trace contacts without necessarily sharing information now the oversight on how google and uh google and apple actually bake this into their phones i would actually rather see this as something that's an app that you that you that you download yourself and you know you've you know you've downloaded you know it's doing this rather than having it baked into the operating system um that's a um that's that's another that, that that is a potential concern, but that's a, but again, there's a there's a certain amount of a scrutiny that goes on there that um and especially since it is broadcasting, there are lots and lots of security folks that can certainly test this and say is it is it really, is it really just broadcasting this information and they can also monitor what, because a lot of these folks that do this kind of testing they, they monitor exactly what their phone communicates back to the mothership so there's so there is the potential for some degree of accountability there.
So that's that's your that's your uh, that's that's the uh, and that's about the extent of my knowledge to it. I, I, I read the webcomic. I read a couple of articles on it, and I was like, that's cool, and moved on to my normal stuff. <laughs> yeah. So as we uh, we kind of gotten uh, a little bit into the conversation, we haven't really circled back to uh, some of the. I mean, we've talked about some of the privacy issues. But I know one of the things you're interested in in talking about was some of your work on um, uh, internet security and non-state actors. So just give me the, you know, the basic overview of what you know from from looking at those topics, so we can share that with our uh, with our listeners and those people that are here this evening. Sure. So so when we when we think about we think about the internet when we see when we see it on the surface when we see like Facebook we see we see the web in general. It looks like this nice contiguous can. Uh, um, communications platform. You click on a link, you go to another web page. You click on it, you go to underneath the hood. It is a um, it is a network of thousands and thousands of networks that are all largely privately owned and managed, and yet still somehow they cohere into this common platform, this common communications platform, where any mod modulo censorship efforts by our, our our favorite folks that we know do censorship, like China and Iran. Um, modulo those cases, for the most part, any in-node in can communicate with any other in-node. I can, I can reach out and send a message. Right now I can send a message to, uh, to, to, a, to if I know its IP address or even I know its domain name, I can, send, I can send traffic to a point in Japan or I can send a point in, and that, and that has to cross multiple different private networks. I was uh, thinking about this, I was just kind of curious and I was like, how does how do how do how do our networks TAMU and and um, and say Suddenlink, which most of us use? How do they connect? So like they all they all have upstreams that they have to go through. So Suddenlink connects to GTT, it connects to Telia, it connects to a number of these big firms. But somewhere in there, it's not just the magic of the technology. These relationships are managed by individuals that have to keep track at the border of each one of these networks how traffic is being exchanged, how it's being how it's being managed, how it's whether whether you're seeing congestion, whether you're seeing um, whether you're seeing things like a denial of a service attack coming from another source, and and that is a that is a in terms of political economy and and a classic kind of cooperation story. That is a fantastic story of people that work, these engineers that work for very different firms, many of whom that compete with one another, Google and Netflix and um, and uh, Hulu. Their their network engineers collaborate to a certain extent to share information about attacks they're seeing, about vulnerabilities they're seeing, because if this transnational network, if all these connections between them don't necessarily, don't necessarily work as we expect, it's very easy for those externalities to spread and affect everyone. So there, there's a tacit level of cooperation there that has, um, that has very different political dynamics and dynamics of like how they create authority in these groups than, than, than we see in conventional uh, we see in conventional governance processes, and so that's so that's in effect what I study. I look at how they create, um, I look at how they cooperate on what situate on what on what topics they cooperate on, on what issues they cooperate on, and what issues they don't. Um, so so that's kind of um, so so for me, there's a question of like, as we these guys have maintained the security and stability of the internet for quite a while, but increasingly govern governments want. Don't want to just have this. They they're not satisfied with, okay, these cowboys are going to ride in and solve these congestion problems. They're going to solve these security problems, and then they're just going to ride off into the sunset. They want stronger guarantees. So when we think of this one kind of political order that we have amongst these actors that are managing the infrastructure, this very different political political order that we know of as as conventional government and the conventional uh, politics of that. Those are those are not. They're not. They don't have to be competing with one another. But understanding how to understanding how to how to how they can communicate so that we can say make better better regulation about IoT security, or how we can better make better um, make better decisions about rural broad broadband deployments so we can ensure that everyone has the same kind of quality of service. And I know I said I don't like net neutrality, but that that is that is an issue when you get to the infrastructure level. That's um those are those are the kind of questions that I think. This, the, these communities have an extraordinarily deep knowledge. Governments don't necessarily have the capability to collect this information and be on top of all these changes. How do we, how do we create an interface between these so that we can actually have better informed, 
regulation, laws, statutes, whatever. So, so that's a, so that's a little bit longer than a nutshell. But. Yeah. Well, we, uh, as I alluded to in an email to you, we need to, uh, we need to chat outside of our podcast, thinking about these, how to regulate these issues and the balance between uh, things like privacy and usability and accessibility and discrimination. Um, there's, uh, there's actually a, a group of us that are starting to have some conversations around that at A&M. So you and I should talk. Greg, did you go mute on me? I, I, did, are you muted on your end? Can I, uh, is everything okay? Yeah, well, I'm still, you know, uh, following along, <laughs> following along. I mean, I, I, truthfully, I know more about Jesse's work than you do, since I actually mm -hmm. recruited him to the Bush School <laughs> and, and, and am his department head. So I, I kind of knew some of this stuff already. And I just uh, wanted to allow you to be educated. You're, you're letting me have my moment. All the questions yeah. always come for Greg. Greg's letting me have my moment. All right, Greg, I've warned Greg you. have been gracious enough to let me ramble on about that for much longer <laughs> than I did just there. So it's, uh, he's, a, he's, he's a gracious fellow. And he, he smiles and nods at the right places and, uh, and then asks me, like, and then says, yeah, government will you. still win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I always, in the end, I always say, yeah, government will win in the end. <laughs> Greg, because I have to ask it has, you. it has armies and police forces, so it will win in the end. Yeah, they have they have the violence. <laughs> Except they rely on the internet to communicate. So, uh. Greg, I want you to explain to me that oil prices were negative, and I don't understand that at all. I asked you before and warned you that someone needed to explain to me how oil can have a negative price. Um, so, give me close this down because I. Uh, I don't think we have any more questions. So close this down with how is how is oil negatively priced at some point? So we, we were in an interesting situation uh, yesterday where uh, if you were willing to take a contract to receive uh, a certain amount of oil, a futures contract, the person who was quote unquote selling that contract to you was not actually not getting money from you, was going to give you money to take that contract. And this is unprecedented, it's never happened in the, in the futures market. Uh, so it was a weird concatenation of circumstances. The most important weirdness to understand is that the, the futures market in the trading of oil is, is uh, almost exclusively among people who never actually wanna take possession of any oil. You know, they're trading paper contracts uh, in, in hopes of being able to play a market in arbitrage differences in markets and guess right where other people guess wrong and, and, and make money by trading paper, not by actually taking possession of oil. So futures contracts kind of unravel toward the end of the month. These were futures contracts to accept oil, to receive oil in May. And I, I think I forget if the contracts actually get unraveled uh, tomorrow or Friday or Thursday, or I forget when. But we were coming close to the end of the trading period. That is to say, if you get caught with the hot potato at the end of it, you're actually obligated to uh, receive some physical barrels of oil. And as I said, almost no one who trades in these markets wants to receive physical barrels of oil, particularly at a time, and this is the second circumstance that's unusual, when we are in an, in an enormous global oversupply of oil. Not only because demand for oil has collapsed, as a result of the, of the COVID pandemic, but also because for, for uh, all sorts of interesting political and economic reasons and technological reasons, we're awash in oil, right? Uh, the United States is producing an enormous amount of oil, much more than it was six or eight years ago. Saudi Arabia and Russia, for reasons having to do with their own market share, uh, ideas and, 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 and dominant, you know, asserting dominance in the market, were producing more oil than they had been producing for a while. All this happens at a time when global demand is completely collapsing. There is no place to put physical barrels of oil, right? The tank farms that you see if you're driving through New Jersey up to New York, right? Or, or big tanker ships that you can just put oil in and have them wait offshore. Those are all full. There's no place to put the stuff. So we were in a strange situation that you didn't want to get caught 
with the hot potato at the end of this uh, futures contract uh, uh, period, because not only do you not usually want to take possession of physical oil, but there's actually no place to put it. And so uh, that's why, you know, you, you could, you could quote unquote, buy a futures contract for a barrel of oil at minus $35, which is to say the person selling you that contract would give you $35 to take the contract off his or her hands. So it's an artifact, but it's also an indicator uh, of the enormous oversupply of oil uh, in the market right now, uh, uh, given the collapse of, of world demand. So that's why you saw West Texas Intermediate uh, futures contracts for delivery in May go, uh, go into negative territory yesterday. Well, there's, your short, there's your short answer. It has nothing to do with the internet, except I think these <laughs> trades are actually done on the internet now. And information about storage capacities are probably uh, conveyed via the internet. So there's one follow-up on that I see, Greg, um, from the crowd, which is, do you know if the U.S. Strategic Oil Reserve has any excess capacity? It does. Uh, I, I don't know how much. And, and probably very few people know how much because actually uh, uh, measuring the, 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 where the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is, is, uh, is a day-to-day -day thing because it's in salt, it's, it's in salt uh, uh, caverns in Louisiana, close to Texas, uh, and, it's, uh, and they seep. So you got to go in and you got to test every once in a while. It's very, very interesting because the president said weeks ago, we're going to buy oil. We're going to fill the SPR up to the top. But the Congress, in its wisdom, uh, didn't allocate any money in the various uh, 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 bills that went through to to try to fund the the the, the emergency procedures to to keep the economy on life support uh, with the with the co coronavirus pandemic. They never funded any. Uh, they never allocated any money to to uh, buy uh, to buy oil for the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So it was Congress. <laughs> And in the end, Congress uh, appropriates funds. And as much as President Trump might want to spend money that Congress has not appropriated, and has found ways to spend money that Congress has not appropriated by declaring national emergency to build the, try to build the quote unquote border wall, uh, he has not been able to find a way to uh, spend money that has not been appropriated by, by Congress for further filling the strategic petroleum reserve final question while we were talking this is a yes or no and i'm, I'm going to hold myself to yes or no on this as well okay so yes jesse's or no gotta, is the rule. jesse's got to do yes or no on this too i don't care what <laughs> <laughs> i got a notification on my uh, what's that what are the two answers again <laughs> <laughs> So the headline from the Wall Street Journal and notification to me for an article, of course I haven't read because I'm hanging out with the two of you. The big question for colleges, will there be a fall semester on uh, campus? Uh, and I'm gonna say Texas A&M campus and I'll go first. And I'm gonna say no. I don't think we'll be on campus in the fall. Gentlemen? I, I'm, I'm gonna say yes. Uh, uh, but with this caveat, ah, you only got no yes, Greg. You only got no yes. I said yes. I said yes. <laughs> but here's my caveat. That's a that's a that's a straight up bet. That yes or no. Mm -hmm. If you give me any odds at all, I'll go no. I like that, Jesse. No. No. Okay. Well, when we uh, start back recording again in the fall, hopefully we, we still have a meeting next week, but I am, uh, we've got our answers on the record. We'll have to revisit in the fall uh, this episode to see who was right um, and uh, see whether we also think whoever was right was, was right for being right. Was it a good <laughs> idea to go back or a bad idea for going back? We did, okay. We did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We need to send a, like a nice little, speaking of cryptography, a nice little cryptographically signed <laughs> message that says, this was my answer, and then we can decrypt it, 
in the fall and say, <laughs> it's signed, we know the person said it, this is, there's no reneging, there's no like, oh, well, here's my answer now that I know yeah. that. What I need is one of those timed emails, right, where I can send an email to the three of us and, uh, and Faith so that we can't uh, sneak out of it that uh, September 1 or August 15th, it generates our responses and <laughs> sends them to us. Gentlemen, uh, Jesse, thanks for being here. Um, it was great to get to chat to you about these things. Let's have more conversations. Greg, thanks uh, for letting me do so much of the talking tonight. And uh, thanks to the audience for your questions and for being here with us tonight. Bye-bye, everybody. We'll see you next week, same time, same place. End of semester. Oh, yeah. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>